The folks at OXO are on a mission to make everyday experiences a little better. And for product engineer Becca Del Monte, it can be hard to leave that mission at work. I think when you walk into someone else's kitchen, you see right away what tools they should have to make it better. <laughs> you you are very aware of how much they're putting up with. And everyone does this because it's just like over time they break down or you bought it one time at the grocery store and you didn't think about it. And it's just incredible how much better it could be. So I'm usually just has put like a list going when I'm in someone's kitchen. I'm like, I'm going to get you all these things. Don't even worry about it. It's going to be so much better. <laughs> Let Becca make your kitchen better. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. Good morning, class. Welcome to Economics 101. Today, we're going to be discussing the law of supply and demand, which is anyone, anyone, that the market price of a product is usually the effect of the relationship between the demand for the product and its availability. In general, high supply and low demand will keep the price of a product, anyone, anyone, low, and the inverse is usually true. Low supply and high demand will drive the price, anyone, anyone, up. But what happens when an industry, or more specifically, Mother Nature, struggles to keep up with demand? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? Bueller? 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 Today, we're talking about the true costs of producing mezcal. In Mexico, there's always an excuse to celebrate. Always. Birthdays are never low-key. Going away parties are a guaranteed way to miss the flight to your next destination. The ritual of celebration is consummated. Can we say that? Executed. Completed. Through consumption. Mateo Schimpf and Emily Green are the reporters for this story. They're both independent producers based in Mexico. It's not totally unlike other world traditions, except that in Mexico, they use a very particular and symbolic elixir to ring in the occasion. And in recent years, that party has headed north. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. In the U.S., in 2018, Mezcal posted the largest gain in consumption across all spirit categories, more than whiskey, vodka, and its Mexican kin, tequila. As a consumer product, Mezcal is probably, I'm thinking, what tequila was 40 years ago. It was new and exciting and a little untamed. And now I see it on every cocktail menu in just about every trendy restaurant. But... As it often happens when you love something to death, you also end up changing the conditions and processes under which it was created. For tequila, this meant investors putting a lot of pressure on producers and the environment to standardize and scale production. And initially, it affected quality. Over time, it's led to a shortage of agave. That's the succulent plant used to make tequila. But most fundamentally, it's changed the fabric of the spirit— and it's also changed communities where it's being produced. 
So how exactly are folks in the mezcal industry trying to learn from tequila? Are they going to avoid those same mistakes? That's what we set out to find. If it is actually possible to make mezcal accessible to consumers in the U.S. without losing the essence of what made people fall in love in the first place. So they say mezcal has magical powers. Ooh, magical powers. Have you ever seen My Big Fat Greek Wedding? In that movie, Gus is convinced that you can use Windex to treat anything from psoriasis to poison ivy. And in Mexico, they kind of look at mezcal the same way. An upset stomach? Drink some mezcal. Common cold? Take a shot. Mexicans are definitely mezcal aficionados. Dare I say even a little smug about it. You might catch some side-eye ordering a tequila at the bar. Emily and I originally met in Mexico City, which is actually a lot like Oakland, California. Music, big hipster scene, and slightly less Indian food. And that's where we're going to begin our reporting, in Oakland. Yeah, we kind of started our journey at the end. All right, we are now in downtown Oakland, California on Broadway Street, just making our way to the Mezcal Bar. On 24th and Broadway, at an airy, exposed brick Mezcal Bar called Calavera. We wanted a taste of the Mezcal fever, and we wanted to meet Susan Koss. I am Susan Koss, and I am the co-founder of the blog Mezcalistas. Mezcalistas? has become a go-to source for the latest industry news and opinion. I always joke around that when we first launched the blog, I think we had three readers, uh, my mom, Max's wife, and Ron Cooper of Del McGay. And he used to send us emails. I had friends who were just like, oh my God, that must feel so terrible that this guy is totally ripping you a new one. And I'm like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Ron Cooper is reading our blog. Ron Cooper is kind of like the OG of bringing mezcal from Mexico to the U.S. Susan actually got into the business by way of the farm-to-table food movement that exploded around 2007. I was traveling uh, back and forth to Oaxaca because I was fascinated by the food. World-class chefs like Alejandro Ruiz of Casa Oaxaca and Ricardo Muñoz Zorita of Casa Azul, Those guys are largely credited with bringing mezcal into the fine dining and commercial arenas. And in exploring the gastronomy of Oaxaca, the two chefs saw mezcal and food culture as totally interconnected. And so did Susan. I'm always fascinated by people who care so deeply about what it is they're eating and where that comes from and how it's produced and how it's made, and then not give a single thought to what it is they're drinking, be it, you know, just sodas or waters or beer or any kind of alcoholic beverage. For Susan and really anyone who gets into the world of mezcal, there's this pull. We kind of joked about it earlier, but it's this combination of culture, history, and tradition that takes something super simple and transforms it into something... Are we going to say it again? Magical. It's a beverage like wine that is the perfect embodiment of the land. And there are only four things that go into mezcal. It's the agave, water, the yeast in the air, because it's wild fermentation, and then the hands of the mescalero, and that is all. And then you get these varieties and flavors based on changes in any of those things. All right, I got to say it. I am intrigued. Us too. We'd heard that mezcal was made principally in small pueblos by indigenous and often poor family distillers. And so we wanted to understand, first of all, what makes it so 
magical. But also, how is a global marketplace for mezcal affecting them? Not just them, but also the land and nearly 500 years of production. So we decided to go down to Oaxaca, the birthplace of mezcal. Happy not to be hungover. That'll be the last time we say that for four days. Most palenques, that's what the mezcal distilleries are called. They're at least an hour drive into the mountains and hillsides surrounding Oaxaca City. And that's how we found ourselves in the car with Felix Monterosa, founder of Quiche Mezcal. Listening to Beavery Corporation. Most of the roads in Oaxaca are pretty well paved, but sometimes you've got to do a little <laughs> off-roading to get where you're going. And things are getting crazy. We haven't even had any mezcal yet. So we pull up to a palenque in Santa Catarina Minas. It's a rural town outside Oaxaca City. It's really just this family's home. We walk through the front gate, past the open living and dining areas, and eventually we come upon a small, well-manicured plot of newly planted agaves. As we step over a few baby chickens, there's these four guys, and they're hanging around two clay pots. They're singing, laughing, and making mezcal. Si la vaca está amarrada, la tenemos que soltar. We're looking at the mezcal distillation process in clay pots. So as the fermented mezcal heats up in the clay pots, it, it hits the bottom of the steel pan with the cold water running over it, and it condenses and then runs down the sides of the clay pot into a little bamboo chute. I'm just going to interrupt myself here and explain the making of mezcal in a nutshell. So you start with the maguey, which is an agave, which is a piña. Which is a pineapple in Spanish. Right, but it's not actually a pineapple. It just looks like one and grows underground. And these piñas, they're huge, like 200 pounds. And they take anywhere from 8 to 25 years to mature. That's longer than it takes a lot of people to mature. (laughs) Right. So you dig this ripe 200-pound piña out of the earth and throw it into the back of a truck where it goes on a journey. Vamos. And eventually ends up back at the palenque. These piñas, they're then left to roast in a giant stone-covered oven. The maestro mezcalero, he's the mezcal master, pretty much decides the agaves are perfectly cooked when he decides they're perfectly cooked. For one maestro, that's four days. For another, it could be six. It's like your Italian grandmother's favorite ragu recipe. Only she knows how much pancetta to use. And now we're eating it. Oh, it's kind of sweet. It's dulce, no? So the cooked piñas get crushed either by hand or by horse or, in some cases, machine. The crushed piña fibers and sweet, tendery juices... They're mixed up with water and left to ferment in huge wooden vats. Until the maestro mescalero, he dips his finger in the tub and says, listo. And then all those sweet fermented juices, they're transferred into pots, also known as stills, where it goes through two rounds of distillation. And the final product comes out piping hot at about 90 proof. say it's a really cool process. It's kind of like the pinnacle of craft. 
When you see mescaleros splitting 200-pound piñas with a machete, mashing agave fibers with a 50-pound mallet, taste-testing the first distillate through a hollowed-out sugar cane, you realize why this stuff regularly goes for $80, $100, sometimes even $200 per bottle. And the fact that some piñas are like 175 in dog years. <laughs> well, okay, so it sounds like mezcal is a bit like wine, if you think of it that way. Not so much in the way that it tastes, but I'm thinking more on a fundamental level. Totally. You can make mezcal from about 30 different types of agave species. So for those who don't know, can you explain what exactly the difference is between mezcal and tequila? Tequila is actually a mezcal made from a particular type of agave called blue agave. So tequila would kind of be like your champagne. Yeah, legally, it can only be made in Jalisco and a handful of other regions. But because they don't roast the blue agave in a covered stone oven for five days, it loses out on that smoky flavor that's characteristic of mezcal. In this process of making mezcal, it's like 500 years old. My name is Luis Arellanes Cruz, from Santa Catarina, Minas, the cuna del mezcal. This is Luis Arellanes Cruz. He is the master mezcalero here. Luis keeps his red checkered shirt open to the fourth button and has a brilliantly white beard and soft, wrinkled eyes. And when was the first time you took mezcal? Since 14, 15 years. He started drinking mezcal when he was around 14 years old. And I know that sounds a little young. But in Oaxaca, it's tradition. They serve mezcal at baptisms, at weddings, at funerals. Pretty much every gathering means mezcal is on the menu. Look, mezcal was long seen as a beverage for very humble, very poor people. But in reality, as far as our town is concerned, people here drink mezcal well into their 80, even 95, 100 years old. And these old men are healthy. I mean, they don't get sick. With mezcal, you don't get cirrhosis, and it has a peculiarity. No matter how much you drink, you wake up feeling brand new, ready to work, no hangover. I mean, you just wake up hungry. Whoa, you were not kidding when you said that mezcal is magical. I mean, I do love mezcal, but I'm going to say that I don't think any liquor is totally hangover-proof. Yeah, I know what you mean. But folks in the region swear it's true. According to Luis, it's the actual fountain of youth. And the explosion of mezcal has been really good for Luis and his family. Like a lot of families in Oaxaca, making mezcal was something they did on the side. For lack of a better term, it was backyard moonshine. Multiple generations of experimentation and tinkering with recipes, selling to neighbors in plastic or repurposed Bacardi bottles. But now they live from it. Now our income is a little bit higher because we have a bit more money to send our children to school. We now have, you know, kids in college, lawyers, engineers. In my case, I have a daughter who is a lawyer, another that is a chemical engineer with a PhD, and she studied in Manchester, England. There aren't many families in Oaxaca that can afford to send their kids to study in England. And Luis isn't the only mezcalero who's been able to rise out of poverty with the mezcal boom. It's a story we heard from producers all across Oaxaca. But there is a catch. The price for agaves is about six times higher than it was five years ago. 
You used to buy a bottle of mezcal from your neighbor for five pesos. Now that same bottle is going for 500. Mezcal is no longer for the bricklayers. It used to be for the bricklayers, and now it's for, well, rich people. Because mezcal is now really expensive. So, mezcal is providing socioeconomic mobility within communities. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's really, really good. But it's also pushing those same community members out of the market. For something that represents 500 years of culture and tradition, that's a big loss. And this isn't the first time that Mezcal has faced an existential crisis. To tell you that part, we're going to take you on another ride. We'll go on that ride after the break. It's time for another Bob's Red Mill Grain Quiz, and this week I'm calling Anne Bartholomew, and she's a product manager here at America's Test Kitchen. Hey, Bridget. Hi, Anne. Now, I hear that you are a big fan of pan-baked granola. I love granola. It is literally one of my favorite things. Okay, well, let's see if you can answer this question. Where does the name granola come from? Hmm. You know, I've never thought about that. I don't know. If I was going to guess, I would say... Does it have something to do with grains, like a play on the word grains? Granola, granola. That's a good guess, and not quite. A doctor in Michigan collected leftover breadcrumbs to serve as breakfast to his patients, and he called it granula, as in granules. But that name was trademarked for something similar, so he changed it to granola. But Bob's Red Mill pan-baked granola is definitely not leftover breadcrumbs. Check out all of the flavors like maple sea salt or cranberry almond at bobsredmill.com. Is your kitchen faucet smart? Well, the Sensate faucet with Kohler Connect is. Your voice commands it to turn on and off. You can have it dispense a precise volume of water from a cup to gallons or a preset amount for your water bottle or coffee pot. All hands-free. The Sensate Smart Faucet is compatible with Amazon Alexa, Google Home, and Apple HomeKit. And the Kohler Connect app lets you monitor water usage by the week, month, or year. It also tells you if there's a leak. You tell that faucet what to do. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. A good tool can make experimenting in the kitchen fun. That's why Chef Steps created the Jewel. It takes sous vide cooking to the next level. I asked my test kitchen colleagues what they do with theirs. I actually sous vide sous vide a turkey once. I think vegetables can really benefit from it too. So you can also sous vide starburst candy and you can like arrange the color, sous vide it, and then they all kind of melt into one another and you can make jewelry with it. I actually have a sous vide starburst necklace at my desk. Jewel, perfect starburst necklaces every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2019. America's Test Kitchen Kids just launched a cooking club for young chefs. Now stay tuned at the end of this episode for a preview of our new subscription box program, The Young Chefs Club, plus a discount code.
Before the break, we were about to head out on another ride to learn about the first existential crisis Mezcal faced. So we're stopped. We're stopped right now on the side of the road somewhere, somewhere deep in the mountains of Oaxaca, checking out the wild javali through the lush Oaxacan countryside, past wild agaves. This looks kind of like a land before time. To a maze of stream-carved narrows and trickling waterfalls, which was the ideal place to interview this guy. Testing, testing, one, two, three. We're here with Asis, what's your last name? Cortes. Cortes. Asis Cortes. What is your title? Sixth generation of Mezcalero family. Mezcal is in Asis's DNA. And his Mezcal brand is named, aptly, Origen Raiz, the root of origin. Asis set up on a thick stump in the foreground of an endlessly expanding range of spiny desert vegetation and wild agaves. Being in this space and you understand the life of the agave is what I want to share. How these agaves just take like 15 or 20 years just to get mature, to be ready to can come in to be mezcal one day. So for us, the mezcal is started with the life of the agave. And that's a really long time. Asis is from a small town. It's called Santiago Matatlan. And it's about an hour outside of Oaxaca City. It's little more than a one-mile stretch of tienditas and comedores. But Santiago Matatlan is the world capital of mezcal. And when Asis was growing up in the 70s, everyone was making mezcal. It was around 12,000 people and around 400 distilleries. Wow, that's, that's incredible. Exactly. It was a big population of mezcaleros. Everybody used to produce mezcal because the, the people, the local people used to drink only mezcal back in the day. It's not like they used to drink a lot. It used to, it used to be only the, the only option back in the day, mezcal in the villages around Oaxaca, Chiapas, Guerrero. Like, that was the main drink for parties, for celebrations. But then this thing happened. Think back to when you were 22. Oh, God. I would really prefer not to. Well, remember when you were taking all those $2 tequila shots at the bar? Pour, salt, lime, repeat. Perhaps you remember the morning after, although I'm sure you'd choose to forget. And that's probably because you were drinking a mixto tequila. That is, a tequila made from 51% blue agave and 49% other sugar. Like cane sugar, corn sugar? It's much cheaper and less laborious to produce and gives you a rockin' hangover. So in the 80s, these guys called conejeros... Rabbits. Right, rabbits. They started producing a mixto mezcal from cane sugar in Oaxaca. And they got their name from an uncanny ability to move a lot of bootleg mezcal really fast. And these conejeros, the rabbits, they started undercutting family mezcal producers by selling their mixto product in pueblos across Oaxaca at just a fraction of the market price. So by the 90s, there was already a lot of people doing this practice. It was probably more than 90% of the mezcal was not really mezcal. But also in this time, it was no regulations. This was a difficult time for producers in Oaxaca. And in many ways, it's how mezcal got its worm-in-the-bottle, blacked-out Mexican nights reputation. As the conejeros squeezed out generations of mezcaleros, they were exploding across the national and international markets and flooding it with mixto mezcal. 
and it was a big, big uh, bad time for a lot of people. When I was a teenager, most of my friends, they left the, the, the town. I lost all my friends. I lost my family. A lot of my uncles, my cousins, they didn't grow up in the town. They have to grow up in other places. And all the time I had these conversations with them. They was missing us. We was missing them. So a lot of families, they're separate. The bottoming out of the mezcal market coincided with a period of increasing Mexican immigration to the U.S. in the early to mid-1990s. And ultimately, it ended up fracturing and displacing Oaxacan families. And things continued this way for years. The Conajeros sold Mixto products, and the locals continued to fold. Asis says by 2005, there were only about 20 distilleries in the town. Remember, according to Asis, there were something like 400 in the 70s. So things didn't really change until 2005. That's when a bunch of mezcal makers got together and finally got the government to intervene. Now, mezcal has to be certified by the government, and it has to be 100% agave. And that's helped. In Santiago, Matatlan, people are coming back. Not the older generations who migrated, but their kids. And they're coming back for mezcal. The town now has around 190 distilleries. That's like an 850% increase from 2005. But those conojeros, they haven't completely disappeared, according to Asís. He says all those years they were selling bootleg mezcal, they got rich and powerful. And Asís says that now, these conojeros have turned into some of the biggest players in the mezcal market. By law, they can no longer produce mixto mezcal. But they've industrialized a process to a level that would be unrecognizable if you walked into any small palenque. For Asis, the fear is that these conajero-turned-industrial mezcal producers, they're once again going to edge out smaller producers, like him. In Oaxaca, some people refer to a process called tequilizado. Like our friend Felix, the founder and owner of Quish Mezcal. Felix is an artist. After college, he and some of his artist buddies decided to open up the Quiche Mescaleria, which was, at the time, in this sort of red-light district of Oaxaca City. They injected creativity into the space, designed the labels, and they really reclaimed mezcal as something that wasn't just your grandparents' hooch, but as a cultural symbol of Oaxaca. Art, street art especially, is super prevalent among younger generations in Oaxaca. So I, I feel like Felix and his friends captured some of that street art inertia and spun it back into mezcal. Felix, despite having started Quiche over 10 years ago, he still carries this artist's demeanor. His words are numbered, and he maintains an observant gaze over each passing moment. But when he talks mezcal, it's all business. Lo que no queremos... What we don't want is for mezcal to turn into tequila. We're not competing to go down that path, the tequilizado path. The new brands that have grown and those with many resources are going down that path. They're competing with each other to have the cheapest mezcal with the most amount of volume. The story is repeating itself. What Felix is referencing is the fact that as consumer demand for tequila exploded, Tequila exports have grown nearly 400 percent since 1995. And as those exports grow, so did the demand to produce it faster and cheaper. Essentially, in the eyes of Felix, tequilizado is synonymous with industrialization. 
Pero un maestro mezcalero no puede producir... A mezcal master cannot produce 50,000 liters of mezcal. That's not artisanal in any way whatsoever. Before mezcal became popular, my ancestors did a lot of work to show the world what artisanal mezcal is, what agave diversity is, and what regional diversity looks like. Now, some companies are only using this for marketing, when, in reality, it's a cultural product. So Felix explained to us that According to the law that governs mezcal production... Well, what exactly is the government involvement here? Oh, it's big. So according to this law, there are three kinds of mezcal. Ancestral, artesanal, and just mezcal. Just mezcal? Yeah, they probably could have come up with a better name. In short, ancestral mezcal. It means a single-batch distillation in handmade clay pots where the cooked piñas have to be crushed by hand or a giant stone wheel. It's a super labor-intensive and fickle operation. Artesanal mezcal, on the other hand, can be cooked in copper stills, which gives you a bit more control over things. And just mezcal, it's basically an industrial process. Right now, artesanal, or artisanal, it's like the cool kid on the block. I mean, artisanal. We all live in the golden age of artisanal. I mean, I'm pretty sure that they've got bottles of asparagus water at Whole Foods that sell for like six bucks. Yeah, I think it was right next to the $34 emu egg omelet. But anyway, by the golden age of artisanal, I mean, we really do live in this golden age of using the word artisanal. And it doesn't take more than a simple Google search to see that, for instance, in 2018, we use the word artisanal twice as much as we did in 1980. And as consumers, we love it. But in the mezcal industry, there are a lot of questions about whether industrial producers are just marketing themselves as artisanal. That's the sound of a horse crushing cooked agave before the distillation process. And when you see bottles of mezcal that say artesanal, I think this is what most people think of. A little palenque with a horse crushing cooked agave and a few vats where they're distilled. But this isn't entirely the case. We went to the palenque of a big brand called Sombra. It's about 30 minutes outside of Oaxaca City, and there are big gates protecting the entrance. My name is John Sean Fagan, and uh, I'm the CEO and uh, director of Sombra Mezcal. John is in his late 60s. He has these big mitten paws, and he's something of a serial entrepreneur. John cashed in on success in the tech world and then spent over a decade in the tequila industry before making his foray into mezcal from a sailboat. <laughs> a sailboat? I was living on a sailboat. <laughs> John makes sure to let you know about his sailboat. And then... Well, I decided about four years ago that I wanted to produce my own mezcal. I didn't want to buy from other palenques or just be a middleman or a broker or a marketeer or something like that. Sombra sits along what you might call Palenque Row in Santiago, Matatlan. In a town known for mezcal, this stretch of dirt road boasts some of the industry's biggest names. And it's hard to mistake that when you drive through the front gate, things at Sombra are a little different. How many kilos of maguey do you think we're looking at right now? Right there? Yeah. Uh, Francisco, or Will, ¿cuánto toneladas está aquí? Vente? Oh, 17. Uh-huh. That's Spanish, right? 17 tons of maguey. 
It's like a little Mount Olympus of agave pineapples. And like others in the business, he says that prices have been rising. And with the prices rising, you're going to see a lot of uh, smaller palenques suffer for, for this because they will not be able to produce a product at the prices that sometimes the brands demand. The Sombra operation is impressive. So we're walking, we're walking into the palenque now, which is huge. That's pretty big. They use immaculate 600-liter gas-heated copper stills that can be regulated down to a decimal of a degree and giant steel cooling tanks. They experiment with speeding up the fermentation process by using a greenhouse. And those horse-drawn wheels? Well, John replaced a horse with a small yellow tractor. And it looks awfully similar to how Patron and other tequila producers in Jalisco operate. Which is all to say, it's a far cry from clay pots and raised brick ovens. A bottle of artesanal espadín from Sombra, that retails for around $35 in the U.S., you can compare that to about $65 for a bottle of artisanal espadín from the smaller, more traditional producers. And, and the reason that we're strong, I believe, is because, you know, of the consistent product. There's no surprises. One batch isn't different from the next batch. And when you're, when you're producing, making cocktails that cost 30, 40 bucks, you know, guys want to know that that is, what they're pouring in there is what they poured in the, the time before. Some people might say that it takes away from the essence of mezcal, though, no? It could be. It could be. Yeah, it, absolutely, 100%. But sometimes surprises are really great, but oh, that doesn't really create much of a market for mezcal. Well, this is all starting to sound a little less magical. It certainly takes away from some of the charm. So what we're seeing here is this process that, under Mexican regulations, is technically artisanal. But that left us with a lot of questions, because it sure looks like an industrial process. And it made us wonder, just because it checks off the boxes, is it really artisanal? And I want to be clear, Sombra is doing some great things on the environmental and community sustainability front. John figured out this cool way to create adobe bricks from agave fibers. And he's using those bricks to build homes and schools around the community. Sombra is also on the forefront of treating the toxic wastewater that's produced in the making of mezcal. But yeah, it's fair to say that we came away with a lot of questions and also doubts about this vague line between artisanal and industrial. We tried to get access to some of the actual industrial mezcal makers, and they wouldn't even let us in. John, on the other hand, he was really upfront with us. But even so, seeing Sombra's operations really underscored how blurry these distinctions really are. Well, that sounds like a problem that people could definitely take advantage of. Yeah, so in Jalisco, to pace the rising demand and the huge influx of international dollars into the tequila market, distillers are starting to use increasingly efficient methods of production. Like a diffuser, it's essentially a basketball court-sized machine that slides agaves along a conveyor belt and then it blasts them with water instead of cooking them. Sometimes these piñas are being soaked in a hydrochloric acid bath to extract the sugars. And that is not what I think of when you say the word artisanal. It's taking a process that kind of, by the very laws of nature, is supposed to take a long time and massively expediting it. For whiskey and vodka, 
no problem. There's a new crop of barley and potatoes every year. But not so much for the blue agaves, right? Right. They're still going to take eight years to mature, no matter how quickly you make the tequila. Except for now, you've created this market that expects a product like whiskey or vodka. And the results? Well, the results haven't been good. In Jalisco, there's now this massive shortage of agave. In the past two years, its price has increased more than sixfold. And in Oaxaca, you're starting to see similar results. In the last seven years, the price of agave has gone from just half a peso to almost 12 and a half pesos per kilo. Hillsides that used to be draped in wild agave have been picked clean. Some even argue that a number of wild species are facing extinction. And to cope with the shortage in Alisco, tequila producers are now harvesting agaves after just four years. And that yields a lot less product. Which means you need to harvest even younger agaves. Which produces even less product. And that is exactly what's called a runaway feedback loop. That's right. I think someone used the analogy, try making banana bread with green bananas. It's just not going to be very good. And it's not only affecting supply, but also quality. And another way producers are coping with the shortage? They're stealing agaves from their neighbors all across Mexico. Wait, seriously? Seriously. In 2017, nearly 15,000 agave plants were reported stolen in Mexico, including from mezcal producers in Oaxaca. I mean, how do you even do that? Do you just roll up with a truck in the middle of the night, and in the dark you start digging up piñas? Well, pretty much. Well, I want to go back to that exchange that you had with John, Mateo. You said something like... Some people might say that it takes away from the essence of mezcal, though, no? What exactly did you mean by that? Well, for this, I think we're going to need to tell you a story. And for that, we're going to return to Oakland, to mezcal expert Susan Koss. Oh, it's like every great story out there. It's a tragic love story of Maya Well and her lover. Maya Well was this young and beautiful goddess, and her possessive grandmother guarded her closely. One day, the god of the wind heard Maya Well's siren song, and he fell madly in love with her. And because he was the god of the wind, he sent breezes to caress her body. Maya Well traveled on his soft breezes until they were together, and she escaped her possessive grandmother. Maya Well's grandma couldn't handle being abandoned, and so she plotted to kill the two lovers. But Maya Well and the god of wind they embraced and melted into a beautiful plant that we now know as maguey, or agave. Well, okay, the origins of maguey, that's a beautiful epic story. So mezcal is tied into all this tragedy? Totally. And mezcal to this day plays an important cultural role in Oaxaca. These days, nine states in Mexico are legally able to produce mezcal. But 90% of the mezcal in the market comes from Oaxaca. And in all these places, people develop their own way of making mezcal. It's not just the species, the climate, or the soil type that change the flavor of mezcal. It's the natural yeast from the horse. It's the bacteria from the mallet. And really, it's centuries of institutional knowledge. I think that this is the essence of mezcal. So when you start standardizing the process or homogenizing the flavor profile, you start mass cultivating a single species, you're not only affecting small producers and running up against the laws of nature, you're kind of changing its very fabric. So most of this is uh, very standardized. Mm -hmm. And 
once you have that, you lost what mezcal should be or was for a really long time. More that wild part of the making mezcal, like uh, something special for like changing every batch because the weather was different or because even the mezcalero feels different. Like those changes for me means a lot because it lost the soul for mezcal. You don't have to go too far back into the history of Latin America to see that tequilizado, it's like the modern-day version of how agricultural products become homogenized. Take bananas. The quest to industrialize diverse and culturally significant products, it can destabilize communities and ecosystems. Here's Susan again. Obviously, you have big international spirit companies that are getting involved in the mezcal industry. And I think there are a lot of people in conflict on how to move forward around this, how to produce more volume and yet maintain the integrity of the spirit. And then, of course, you have other people who are just like, they just want to make money. Um, Do you think it's time to stop drinking mezcal? Quite the contrary. I strongly believe that there is a large enough market for there to be products at all different levels. So you can have a more homogenized flavor that comes in, that it's at a much lower price point, and then you can have a lot of products that are you know, very small production, that are very special. But at the end of the day, that opportunity only exists if there's transparency of what's happening in the category, and there is education about why the products are so different, why each mezcal is so different from one another. So I think it gets back to what Susan was saying about, you know, where does my alcohol come from? It's important both as a consumer and for the producer. What you buy has consequences, both good and bad. Right, because the cost of the product isn't the only choice we have to make. There are other costs involved, and some of them have a bigger impact than others. And I think that's the major takeaway here. Because even if you can't taste the difference between all the different kinds of mezcal or you buy cheap liquor like I do, I have this new appreciation for why we shouldn't just buy the cheapest bottle of mezcal we can find. Because it's the difference between small-scale producers sending their kids to college, between maestro mezcaleros working for themselves versus becoming field hands for a big company. And it's the difference between keeping centuries of rich cultural tradition alive versus just letting it fade away. Mezcal has a soul, has a maestro mezcalero, has a family, has a traditions and feelings. And in the moment when you lost that, uh, it's, for me, it's just another alcohol beverage. That was reporters Mateo Schimpf and Emily Green. If you want to see cool images of the palenques that Emily and Mateo visited for the story, well, they're up on our website, and that's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Go check it out. And if you like proof, we hope you do, but be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer, associate producer Caroline Rickert. 
Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is a hand-crushed piña and the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and OXO. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. I'm here in the studio with my colleague, Molly Birnbaum, and she's the editor-in-chief of America's Test Kitchen Kids. Hey, Molly. Hey, Bridget. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You bet. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about America's Test Kitchen Kids? Yeah, for sure. So America's Test Kitchen Kids is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. All of the great, reliable recipes and cooking content of America's Test Kitchen, but reimagined for kids. And we just launched a new Young Chefs Club subscription box. Kids receive a themed box filled with kid-tested recipes, hands-on activities and experiments, and other super fun creative stuff. Sounds great. Can you give me, uh, I don't know, an example of some of the experiments that you might receive in one of those Young Chef Club boxes? I can actually do you one better, Bridget. I've actually brought an assistant with me to the studio today. This is Layla. Hi. Hi, <laughs> Layla. Welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to explore the science of crispy versus crunchy, two super important textures and two of the most popular food textures for snacks. This is part of a science experiment for our January Young Chefs Club texture box. So we're going to start... You guys both have some chips, classic potato chips, and tortilla chips. Do you think you can tell the difference between crispy and crunchy using just your ears, just the sound that you hear when you bite into those chips? Uh, Maybe. I don't know. We'll find out. All right. Let's get into it. So I'm going to eat the potato chip first. I think this one is crispy. Crispy, why? Because it's more delicate and more, like, easier to break. Okay, great. Want to try the other one? Yeah. Okay, so this one is the tortilla chip. (laughs) What does that one sound like to you? I think that the... Tortilla chips were more um, thick, and I think they were crunchy because they sounded like lower pitch in my mouth. Yeah, they sounded like my brother is yelling at each other. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, the potato chips sounded crispier because it sounded like more high-pitched in my mouth, and it sounded like my guinea pig, kind of, (laughs) like um, squeaking and stuff because it was more high-pitched. Yeah, that's totally right. One thing that scientists agree on with crispy and crunchy foods is that they sound different when we eat them. And so you are are right. The potato chip is crispy, whereas the tortilla chip is crunchy. And in the science experiment in the box, we go into that in a bunch of different ways, including measuring the force it takes to break one of these chips. But what scientists have found is that People describe foods that make higher-pitched sounds as crispy and foods that make lower-pitched sounds as crunchy. 
this was great. And thanks, Layla. Thank you to Molly. And if you want to get this experiment and lots of other great recipes and activities for the young chef in your life, well, then head over to atkkids.com slash proof. Use code ATKKIDS10 at checkout for 10% off your first box. Hey, Layla, what's your favorite chip? Um, which flavor? Any kind. I like salt and vinegar.